So this week we're going to talk about the prayer of faith. And I think it's important to understand exactly what we're talking about here. And there's some ideas about faith that is really a false idea. And I want to talk a little bit about that first before we move on, because I want to build a contrast so you can see the falseness of some of these ideas of what faith is, and then see what true faith is from the Word of God. You'll be able to picture it then. If you see something that's false later, you'll go, oh, well, that's what we talked about before. That's falsehood. Because the prayer of faith that God wants us to understand comes right from the throne of God. It's through Him. It's through His mercies. It's through His goodness. It's by His will. It's very determined. And we need to understand how to walk in that. So, let's talk about what faith isn't first. Now, there's certain sects of Christianity that makes faith centered on man's desires and will. And it's actually quite profound when you think about it, to think that I can make God do something that I want. You know, and it actually is misleading. And it's actually a temptation for us to follow in that. Because it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I can make God do whatever I want. And we went to a church down in Alabama, and this church had this way of understanding what faith was. And the term we would use, I guess, is the name it, claim it type of faith. And their idea what faith was is if you just understood something enough or believed in it enough and said it, if you said something enough, sooner or later you would start believing it. And if you believed it, then it would happen. It was man-centered, not God-centered. And I had a problem with it. And I, I wasn't a theologian still working on that one, but... I, I didn't understand what this guy was trying to put out, and it didn't make sense to me. And he came over to our house and visited with us, as is customary, right? And this guy is telling me about faith. And the discussion gets into the point of, of Jesus. When he passed by the fig tree, he cursed the tree and it died. And the guy's point was, well, if you, just, if you speak something and you believe it, then it will happen. And I said, well, wait, 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 stop. Stop the train here. So you're telling me that if I believe something and I speak it, then it'll happen. He goes, yeah, that's right. So I have this apple tree in my backyard as an example. So you're telling me that if I speak to that tree, die, and I believe it, that it'll die. He goes, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. He felt kind of relieved that I finally got the point, right? Well, I said... Oh, wait a minute. What if God doesn't want my tree to die? And that point just went right over his head. He didn't get it. Because he was being misled. And he was a pastor of this church. And the whole point is that our faith brings us into obedience with God. When we pray, we are praying in accordance with His will, or He doesn't even hear us. So the scripture says today. And we have to understand how to pray in accordance with God. Be governed by the Holy Spirit. Be governed by His Word. So then when we do speak out and we do pray, we're praying what God already is wanting to do around us. The prayer of faith. It's very specific. And and anything that is man-centric like that should stand out to you. should make the hair in the back of your neck stand up saying that something doesn't sound right there. Because actually what that is is paramount to witchcraft. If you're trying to pry something out of God's hands, that that is not what faith is. Faith is operating in accordance with God's will and doing what God wants you to do. Obedience is a big deal in faith. The two are closely tied. We're going to build that up today so you can see that. Sometimes people present the idea that you can't know what God wants you to do. I think that's rather curious. Because in Ephesians 2.10 it says, You were created for good works which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So if you don't know what God wants you to do, you got a problem. I don't know everything. But you can lay things out before God and say, You know, I don't really understand what I'm supposed to be doing, but I want to know. And God will move you in the direction He wants you to go. He's the shepherd, right? He's not a very good shepherd if He can't tell you anything. And we need direction. Because who are we? We're the sheep. 
And I think one of the most effective prayers before God is to sometime just come before Him and say, you know, Lord, I don't really understand this. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing exactly, but I'm going to turn this over to you and ask for your help and direction. I need wisdom. And the Lord will give you wisdom. That's a promise from Him. That you can know what to do and how to get through things. And it's pretty cool sometimes when God gives you the answer, isn't it? And and it hits you like, oh, okay, now I know. And now I can proceed. Faith starts at salvation and continues in our life, drawing us toward Christ. And that's called sanctification. Faith has much to do with what God wants to do in us and around us. You know, just like Jesus, he said, my father is working and so am I. We ought to be linked like that to God. So when we see that what God is doing around us, we're praying in accordance with his will to bring about what God wants to do here on earth as it is in heaven. We've heard that one before, haven't we? Biblical faith brings us about an obedience to God, where the believer is eager to do God's will, motivated by love. We see this exhibited by the Apostle Paul, who opens and closes the letter to the Romans with this term, obedience of faith. I think this is just amazing that the whole book of Romans is bookended by this one term, obedience of faith. He links the two together. In Romans 1, verses 1 through 6, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I brought this out before, that this term bondservant is the Greek word for slave. It's doulos. And that's exactly what it means. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He was doing what God would have him to do. Called in as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, though his prophets, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among you whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. When we're called, there's a holy calling where the Holy Spirit calls us into obedience to God. And that is salvation. That is the whole point. Is God brings us to a point where we understand we ought to be doing what God would have us to do. And our prayers should align with that, that God is, is bringing us to a point where he wants us to follow him. Obedience of faith is a term the Apostle Paul used to define his mission to make disciples. And clearly that's our mission as well. God wants us to make disciples, baptize people, and teach them how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not just a believer, a disciple. And there's a difference. The word obedience is hypokoi, which means just that, obedience, attentive hearkening, a submission to God's will. You know, when I became a Christian, I didn't know very much at all about theology or what the Bible said. I didn't understand anything. I was very ignorant. But I do know one thing. When the Lord presented himself, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my need. It was my need for Christ. When I accepted Christ, I accepted the point that he is God. I'm not. He's now in charge. I will do whatever you want. You just got to tell me what to do. And in praying that, I just said, okay, let's go, because that's all I knew how to say. But that's what happened. I turned everything over to God and allowed him to move. And that's what salvation is. And I was, frankly, so ignorant at that point, I didn't even know how to pray. I said, and Lord, you're going to have to teach me how to pray. Well, I was praying when I said that, so I guess I figured that one out. But you don't have to know very much, but one thing you do have to know who Christ is. And you are invited by the Holy Spirit to come into this union with God through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And that is the calling that occurs. 
Even Jesus operated under the premise of obedience of faith. In Hebrews 3, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of this heavenly calling. That's what I was just talking about. Where God calls us into unity with himself. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him, God, his Father, who appointed him as Moses was in all his house. Jesus was faithful to follow after God, and that's an example of our calling in Christ. And what did the obedience of Christ, what did God lead him to do? He sent him to the cross. And aren't you glad that Jesus Christ was obedient to his Father? Because it opened the door of faith for us. If Jesus wouldn't have been obedient to his Father, well, I don't think he would be Jesus. But also, we wouldn't have a way to heaven. Following God is very important to follow him in obedience. And Jesus is in our example of how to do that. Our heavenly calling is compared to Jesus' faithfulness to his Father's will. Drawing near to God is a requirement of faith. In James 4, 7 and 8 it says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And being double-minded, we talked about this before, we have a sinful nature that resides with us even after salvation, and we are told to crucify the flesh because we're walking by the Spirit. And our new nature is through the Spirit of God. That's how we understand the Scriptures, and we understand the truth. That's how we understand who we are in Christ is that the Spirit dwells in our hearts and, and can, He tells us who we are in Christ. That's how we can understand the Scriptures. And that Word implanted in our hearts brings life. It's all a work of God. And we're not to be double-minded. We're to put off the old man and walk by the new man. And maybe it's just me, but it seems to be the case that in the evangelical church, especially in America... We have grown comfortable with the world. We present a gospel that appeals to the flesh instead of propagating this is the Spirit who draws us into truth in God. And we walk by the will of God, not by the will of man. The problem exists because church leaders are satisfied with creating believers in Christ instead of disciples of Christ. And James reminds us that even the devil believes in God. And trembles. We're not just to be believers in Christ and then nothing else is about it. No, we're supposed to be disciples of Christ, which means that we come into a relationship with God and then God leads us through our life and works with us daily that we can follow Him and do what is right in His eyes. We're going to talk about today about being linked to God through Christ in such a way that you abide in Him and Him in you so that you end up doing what he wants because of who you are in Christ. The sermon today is called The Prayer of Faith. And as was read before in 1 John 5, 13 through 15, these two verses, three verses, are actually linked together. Because first it talks about who you are in Christ. And then it talks about how to pray. And these two verses, I don't think it would be accurate to, have, to pull one out from the other. You have to talk about them both together. Because if you don't know Christ, who are you praying to? Right? You have to have this abiding relationship with God. And this brings you into your prayer of faith. The scriptures read, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the main thesis of what John was writing about here, to bring us into this relationship with God so that we know that we have eternal life through Christ. And then he continues that this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request from which we ask from him. And I think we're going to ask, answer two questions here as, as we go through the scripture. The first one is, what was specifically written about Jesus that we may know that we have eternal life? 
Don't you want to know for certain that if you died today, you would go to heaven? Not I hope so, or I think so, or well, I, am a, I am a Baptist. Surely they're going to let the Baptist in, right? I hate to break it to you, but the Bible doesn't say anything about Baptists. It does about believers and, and disciples. And we're going to look and see what God says about how you can know for certain that you have eternal life. And the second question, how do we ask according to God's will so that we know that he hears us and we know that we have the request? That's another important question. How do we pray effectively? We'll start with an overview. Now, this, this section of Scripture goes all the way through the end of the chapter, and it's actually the conclusion that goes from 13, verse 13 to verse 20. And John begins his conclusion to the epistle with a series of statements using the word know. In verse 13, it says, you may know that you have eternal life. And it's very much like in verse 20. It says, you may know him who is true. And that is how we know that we have eternal life is through Christ. Knowing Christ is linked to the confidence in prayer that we'd have before God. These no statements have to do with eternal life, prayer, sanctification, spiritual warfare in verse 19. And again, knowing Christ brings us into eternal life, which is the main point of the epistle. But everything John writes about is predicated by knowing Christ. In fact, Jesus becomes the very foundation of faith. Faith is what God does, and and man just follows in obedience. In Isaiah 28.16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. The cornerstone, of course, is Christ. And it is, he is the foundation for creation, the church, and our faith. And who lays this stone? Did I do it? No, God does it. He's the one who lays the stone. He's the one who brought Christ into the world, incarnate in flesh, and had him die on a cross and raised him from the grave. And in fact, Christ is God who created everything as well. You know, and Christianity is the only religion in the world where God demonstrates his power to save. Specifically, knowing Christ brings us into the unity with God. And this unity that we have is based on a covenant relationship with God which is brought about and spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. He says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He's speaking for God, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Eternal life and the prayer of faith is predicated upon knowing Christ, and the covenant brings us to a point where we know Jesus. We know God. And the fact that he puts his law on your heart is talking about how we follow God. He writes his law on your heart. And I'm not talking about the Mosaic law. We're talking about the law of liberty. The law of the Spirit. God writes his law on your heart so that you can act in accordance with his will and do what he wants. Apart from covenant relationship with God, through Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling your heart, you do not have life within yourself. It is a gift of God that God gives you, and you possess it because God put it there. And without it, we're spiritually dead to God. We're disconnected. We're unplugged. And God very much wants to reestablish this covenant relationship with us. It is God's covenant and Christ's blood, and Christ is the cornerstone of all that we could ever hope to be or dream. So the first question, what was specifically written about Jesus that we may know that we have eternal life? 
To answer this, we must look at the immediate context around 1 John 5.13. And that scripture says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Like I said earlier, this is the thesis of the epistle. The reason John wrote is so that you can know that you have eternal life. The knowledge of eternal life is based on your agreement with the testimony of God concerning Christ. These things are written, is preceded in verse 13. It is God's testimony concerning Christ. Now we're going to look at this in 1 John 5, 5 and 8. This is what God's testimony is concerning Jesus. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now the word believes here is actually a huge word. It's more than just believing that God exists like Abraham Lincoln exists. It's more than believing in Jesus as a historical figure. It's about faith, pistis, or pisteo in the verb form. It brings us into this real relationship with God where we understand who he is, and then he comes and abides in our heart and mind, and we abide in him. That is what faith does. And the testimony that God gave came by the water and the blood and by the Spirit. And the three are in agreement in verse 8. So what does it mean about the water and the blood and the Spirit? Well, let's look at the water first. In Luke 3, verses 21 through 22, it says, and this is talking about the baptism of Christ, how God testified who Jesus is during his baptism. And Luke 3, verses 21 and 22 says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So here, both God the Father speaks and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ in a form of a dove. And the significance of that is that John the Baptist was told, Hey, John, when you see, you're my last Old Testament prophet, when you see the dove coming and descending on that person, that's whom will baptize in the Holy Spirit. That's the Messiah. So John the Baptist gives testimony as well. Now the Apostle John was a disciple of John the Baptist. It gets kind of confusing, I guess. But this is what the Apostle John wrote about what the John the Baptist said. So this is John the Baptist's words. He says, I did not recognize him. Jesus. Now, hold the phone. Did John the Baptist know Jesus? They were cousins. I'm betting they probably knew each other. But here, John the Baptist says, I didn't recognize him. He knew Jesus. What is he talking about? Well, let's read on. He says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me, God, he's a prophet. He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist not only gives testimony of who Jesus is. This is the Son of God because God told me when I see the dove coming down and descending upon him, this is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. So the water gives testimony of who Christ is. His baptism. God comes right out and says, this is my Son. The dove descends and an Old Testament prophet speaks up and said, this is the Son of God. Well, how does the blood testify of who Jesus is? We'll turn to Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. This is talking about the crucifixion of Christ, how God testifies who Jesus is while he was being crucified. And as you notice, when we go through this and we look at this, it was so powerful, the testimony was so powerful that the Romans who killed our Lord came to the conclusion that this is the Son of God. 
understand the impact of what happened here. You have, we have to go back and kind of, with our imagination, put ourselves in this situation and see what's going on. But the same people who spit on our Lord, the same ones who, who flailed Him and made Him carry the cross, they're the same ones who said, this is the Son of God, because they saw the testimony of God right before their eyes. The blood testifies through the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 45-54. Now the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Three hours, it was dark in the middle of the day. Why did that happen? Because Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. Darkness fell over the land in the middle of the day. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sapachathani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake Jesus on the cross? Because he was bearing our sin. God couldn't look on him. He who knew no sin became sin that we might have the righteousness of God, that we would become the righteousness of God. That's what happened. God, why are you forsaking me? I never experienced this before. You know, look at what happened to Jesus. He went through all these things. They, they tortured him. And that was, he was all right with that. And up to this point, now he cries out, why have you forsaken me? It's because of the wrath of God that he bore for our sin. And those not really understanding what was going on, and some standing, some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see where Elijah will come to save him. They didn't have a clue what was going on. They're just being ridiculous. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He had command over his own life. He said, all right, now I'm going to leave. He yielded up his own spirit. He died. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple, the veil, separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of humanity. Only one person could go behind that veil once a year. And now God took that veil and separated it so that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. And now He has the Holy Spirit residing in our heart and mind that we can understand who God is. We have this true relationship with God because He had opened things up to us. And the tombs and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and many appeared to many. Now the centurion... And those who were keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became frightened. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. And I think the blood of Christ brings us to a point of humility as a Christian, doesn't it? And I don't mean humility in the aspect that we think that we're not worth anything. Because that's a false aspect of humility. Because obviously, you're worth quite a lot to God, aren't you? Because he sent his son Jesus to die in your place. You're precious in the sight of God. Don't say you're not worth anything. But the worth that we have comes through Christ. It's not that we are worth it. It's because God has sent his son Jesus to die in your place. He's the one that sets the value on you. And if you die separate from God, you'll be entirely separate from God. 
But the blood brings us to a place where we have to understand who we are in Christ. And it's the baseline for everything we'll ever do for Him. It's always through God. It's always about Jesus. And He's the one who makes the way that it can happen. The third, the Spirit testifies. And I think one of the ways the Spirit testifies is through miracles. In Acts 10.38 it says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We can see that in the testimony of how he healed people and how he even raised people from the dead. It's all about who Jesus is and what he could do. Because who else could do those things? Only God can raise someone from the dead. Only God can walk up to somebody and say, get up and walk when you've been paralyzed for your whole life. Only God can say, open your eyes and see. Only God can do those things. And even the apostles also had the same gifts to go out and do miracles as a testimony to the message that they had. Now Jesus didn't heal everybody. But he healed those so it was a testimony to what he was saying was true. And it's back to the falsehood again. It's a falsehood if you think that if you have enough faith, you could be healed. Maybe God will heal you. Maybe he won't. But we have promises that say that one day we will go to heaven and have perfect bodies, new bodies. That's true. So whether God heals us tomorrow or in eternity... That's up to him. We can pray according to faith and ask for healing. Maybe God will heal us. But there are people in the wheelchairs who have faith. And they have much to look forward to. And I, I think it's a, it's a crime. In certain churches, people are, are led up and they're laid there at the altar and they say, well, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. What if God doesn't heal them? That destroys their faith. That's not faith. Faith has to be doing with obedience to God and doing what He wants you to do and turning things over to Him. Saying, however this works out, I'm in your care. And thank you so much for what you've done. Did you ever go in and pray about something and you start off just by saying, Lord, I thank you that I know you that I can come to you in prayer and just lay this at your feet because right now I don't really understand what I ought to be doing. And I need some help. That should be the genesis of prayer for us. At first we come and we just say, thank you that I know you and I can come before your throne and lay this at your feet. And God will lead you through it and help you. And this testimony of God... It's important for us to understand that in 1 John 5.10 it says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The testimony is what God said concerning His Son, Jesus. And when you say that I believe in Jesus Christ, that what God said about Him is true, the blood and the water and the Spirit testify and the three are in agreement, when you come in agreement with that, then you have the Word of God in your heart. The testimony is in you. God's Word is in you. And it changes you. It makes you a new creature. All things become new, right? That's because God is dwelling in your heart. And He is the one who makes you new. Through repentance and spiritual rebirth, you take God's testimony concerning Christ in. And God gives you life through Christ. And this word in has a testimony in himself is actually a preposition that's in the original Greek that has no range of meaning. The word is en, it means in, and it means the same thing in English. The testimony is in you, which is significant, I think, because you take God's testimony into yourself. You abide in Christ, and He abides in you. And you see that all throughout Scripture, that Jesus talks about abiding in Him and He in you. And that's what it's about. You take God's testimony and you believe it. It comes in you. And then you're in Christ. This process is paramount to accessing God in prayer because you must know who Jesus is to be able to pray. 
If you don't know Jesus, who are you praying to? Some people do superstitious stuff. They light candles and they do all kinds of stuff. You see some sects of Christianity, they say, well, you got to do this. Go out there and walk around on your knees for a while. I, went, I visited this place in Fatima, Spain, and it was a Catholic shrine thing. And you should have seen all the people out there doing this stuff so that God would hear them. It was like paganism. You know, God is eager to hear our prayers. We just have to pray the right way so that we're praying in accordance with His will and be humbled to the point where we're at that point, where we can pray effectively. In verse 14, it says, this is the confidence of 1 John 5, 13, 15. Verse 14 says, this is the confidence which we have before God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in what we ask for, we know that we have the request. And it's interesting that if you go down through verse 17, the thing that he is asking to be prayed for is believers. To bring them back in to the body of Christ. To bring them back into unity with God. That's exactly what he's asking to be prayed for. He's not talking about praying for a new car. Well, you might need a new car. Right? Nothing wrong with asking for that. But the main thing he's asking for here is a prayer of faith for people who have left Christ or need to be introduced to Christ. It's about our main job to bring, make disciples, to share the gospel with people. And just because you hear the words, it's the Holy Spirit that takes it to the heart and mind. And we need his help. The way this is written is interesting too because it's a logical series if we ask anything in accordance with his will, he hears us. That also implies that if we ask something that's not in accordance with his will, guess what? He won't hear you. Why wouldn't God hear? I'm pretty important. Well, if it's not in accordance with God's will, it's sin. Idolatry. We have to be motivated by the right things to ask the right things from God. The logical connection is that not only do we have to have an authoritative relationship with God and then under his authority, then we can ask for what is in accordance with his will and he hears us and we have the request. And sometimes we need to know and ask for help on how to pray. In Psalm 66, 18, it says, If I regard the wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And that's praying by the desires of the old man, isn't it? We brought that contrast out, and we are supposed to pray accordance with the Spirit. In contrast, Jesus says this in John 15, 7-10, it says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, what words? God's testimony concerning Jesus. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you, and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Do you see that? Jesus wants us to abide in him and follow his commandments and do what is right. Because why? Well, he wrote his law on your heart. If you're operating by the Spirit, there's a unity that comes under God. And you'll do what he wants you to do. And that also is what brings unity amongst us. Is when we're all operating under the same rule that God set out, then we're all following the Spirit and God brings us unity. Because of him and his love. The idea of operating under authority may seem rather strange because you don't hear about it very much. However, we're dealing with God, and He is in control. And if we want to be effective, we need to get with His program. And I think in America, there's uh, this ideal of freedom is kind of like rebellion. And you know, I was a soldier and stuff, so I'm all for the Constitution and freedom of religion and everything is important. That's not what I'm talking about. But when I get out and I say, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. It's all about me. I'm, I'm going for it. I'm going to buy myself a Harley and take off. Well, whatever. 
it's all, I have freedom to choose whatever sin I want. And I can destroy myself however I want. But only true freedom comes from knowing Christ. When you know Jesus and He comes in, He sets you free that you can serve Him. If you don't do that, you're in slavery to your sin. You're in bondage to sin. You can't get free of it. And we've all had things we can't get free of until God comes in and sets us free that we can serve Him. It's our old nature to pull us into this bondage. And God sets us free. So when I talk about authority, don't get the idea that I'm trying to you know, bring out this idea of bondage like a legalistic thing. No! It's bondage to God. I'm His slave. I'll do whatever you want, Jesus. Just bring me into the understanding of what that is and help me to do it because I can do nothing apart from You. Nothing! There's absolutely nothing I can do for God. And there's nothing you can do for God either unless the Holy Spirit brings you into the point where you're actually operating under His will and doing what He wants you to do. Then you're free. Because God sets you free. And how freeing that is. And we all end up doing what God wants us to do. He gives us different gifts, right? Some are teachers, some are preachers. I'm a farmer. <laughs> I'm a farmer. This is fun. I said, you want me to be a preacher? Yeah, okay. Let's go for it, I guess. <laughs> but that's what God does. He will bring you into your gift. It might be caring for kids, giving gifts. I don't know. Let God bring you into your gift that you can do what God wants you to do. And then we all have these different gifts that God has put in the body. We end up doing things together, right? And we do a wonderful work for Jesus because of our unity and us operating under the Spirit. When I was in Desert Storm, I had a unique uh, view of the battlefield in a helicopter. I was flying across the battlefield and, it, and going across the desert for hundreds of miles. The one thing I saw was all these tracks in the desert heading north. I mean, they were close together, just tracks, all as far as you could see, to the left and to the right, were all these tracks heading north. And it was interesting because under Schwarzkopf, right, he told them, you will do this. This is your lane. This is what you're going to do. You're going to go from here to there, and this is your objective. And everyone had different things to do. And it ended up, you look across the battlefield, you saw all these tracks going forward. It's very similar to how we should operate in the church. We have specific roles that we ought to be doing if we're listening to the commander, God. And then we align ourselves with what he wants to do and we end up serving each other and doing a great work for him. But we're not going to do it alone. It is what he is doing in the church. God's perspective Think about this for a minute. If God gave his own son for us, what would he withhold from us? Some people walk around blaming God. I want to kick him in the shin. I guess that wouldn't be very Christian. You know why? God already gave you everything that you could possibly have in Christ. What more is there to give you but his own son to die? for your sins, and then operate by the Holy Spirit that He's given to operate in your heart. What else do you want? I'm going to complain about this? Are you kidding me? We have nothing to complain about. We deserve hell. Not to put him on a guilt trip, but that's the reality of it. We deserve to be separate from God. And God had a different plan. He brought us into unity through Christ that we can understand who He is and, and how He brings a salvation to us. He's given us everything. And why wouldn't He give us what we ask for? In Luke eleven thirteen, it says, If you then, Jesus said this, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God wants to give us good gifts. 
gifts to sustain us and, and keep us moving and doing good things for the kingdom of God. The problem is, we get self-centered and we think about us instead. People, you know, many times a problem is us and people will only receive corruption from the flesh. We need to operate by the Spirit. In Galatians 6, 7, and 8 it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from, from the flesh reap corruption. But this one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The relationship in Christ brings confidence because you know God and you're under His control. In Romans 8, 14-16, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, talking about legalism, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons of which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit inside of us, He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Don't you love that testimony? That God Himself tells you who you are so that you know who you are and that you have eternal life. Faith connects us to God. Faith connects us to what God has done for us and He will do for us. And remember, who is actually for us? The Holy Spirit and Jesus, our great high priest, intercede for us. They are praying for us. As we're struggling down here on earth, they are praying for us as well. In Romans 8, 26-28, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that he causes all things to work together for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. That one statement about, you hear people say this all the time, kind of flippantly, is, well, everything happens for good. That's not what the scripture says. Everything happens for good for those who are called according to his purposes. You have to be under God, God's will. Then he works everything according to his purpose. The point is this, that we have to work with God according to His purpose. If we're out there on our own thinking everything is good because of our current circumstances, then we're in trouble. God clearly declares that all of us will have to give an account before God. Clearly. Those outside of Christ will be asked, What did you do with my son Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? Have you turned away from the covenant in His blood because you loved your sin instead? That's what the book of Romans says. People love their sin instead of God, so they turn away. That's terrible. God will allow you to remain in your sin forever, and therefore you'll be separated from God forever. That's what hell is. That's a terrible thing. I wouldn't want that on anybody. And that's the urgency to share the gospel with people. That's where most people are at. Those in the church or in Christ will be asked, what have you allowed Christ to do in your life? Your reward is based on your submission to Christ's authority. We didn't, Like I said earlier, we don't have anything that we can really give credit for, get credit for. It's all what God is doing in us and for us and through us. But wouldn't you want to have a crown to lay down at His feet and say, Lord, you actually did this? You know? That's a marvelous thing, that we have the privilege to act under God's authority, and at the end, we can give glory to God and say, this is yours, Lord. You did this. And it was awesome. Everything is based on God and what He is doing. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, and he who abides in me and I in him... We talked about this abiding, right? He bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can't do anything. You can do nothing. 
You know? And that's the reality of it. When we submit to God's will and we just ask, Lord, I, I just want to do what you want. Please help. Please help me to do this. He will. He'll hear that prayer. Because that is what He wants. And when we start praying for other people who need to be saved, we know that God wants to save everybody. We don't know who He's going to save. So start praying. You know, we all have relatives who have gone astray. As such, once was I, right? And when you start praying in accordance with God's will, Lord, please show this person who you are. Help me to say the right words that will demonstrate your word before them so that they can understand who you are. Your testimony about who Jesus is. Help me to share the words of faith with these people that they can know who you are. I had a friend once, a Muslim guy, who said, you know, I don't think that Jesus actually died. And I shared this before. You know, I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Stop, hold the trim. <laughs> you kidding me? You're telling me that the Romans weren't good about killing people? They were there, and they, they gave testimony that we talked about today of how Jesus died, the blood that was shed, gave testimony to who he actually was. And then those that wrote it down died for their, their testimony as well. It's sealed by the apostles' testimony, by their blood. This is what I saw, and I'm not recanting. Kill me if you want. To conclude, the writer of Hebrews concludes this, his sermon with his benediction. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. In Hebrews 13, 20-21, it says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.